going to complete our study in the book of James. And we're in chapters, chapter 5, 13 to 20 are the verses. And I think you'll agree with me as we begin that this is a very challenging section of Scripture. And uh, I hope it will cause us to reflect on our walk and our faithfulness and the level of commitment we have to prayer in our Christian walk. Let me begin by praying for us. Father, we ask now that you hear us, that you uh, enliven our hearts to be responsive to your word, that your name is glorified in the things that are said, that are written in your word, and that our hearts might be fulfilled and more joyful because of the time we've spent in your word this morning. Be a blessing to us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me spend a little bit of time sort of reviewing the book as part of an introduction and sort of a, just to catch us up to where we are. So you know that the book of James was written by the Lord's brother. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Most historians and scholars agree that the letter was written sometime in 60 to 61 AD and that James was martyred in 62 AD. The epistle itself has 108 verses and more than 50 of those verses are commands to people that James believes are supposed to know the rudiments of Christianity and should therefore know how to live appropriately in light of our understanding of Christianity. The epistle of James is not directed to any particular church or to any particular city, but it's written to those people who are part of a group that fled Jerusalem due to persecution who are part of the diaspora. And the word diaspora literally means the scattered seed. And it's addressed to Jewish Christians then who were scattered among the Gentiles in the ancient world. Now in preparation for this, we got together with Scott and John at the other church at um, Gladstone. And Scott mentioned that 15 times James uses the word brothers in this epistle. So the letter is really concerned with the relationships that we have between these scattered believers in the diaspora and with their relationships that are developing within the community. And so this epistle then sees Christians not as individual units of faith, which would be easy to sort of anticipate, but as members of a larger scattered community. And this epistle addresses how that community interacts with its members. So you remember back at the beginning, right from the very beginning, James tells us that as Christians, we're going to chance upon or meet up with various trials, tests, and temptations. By the way, those are all the same word in Greek in our Christian life. And our responses to those tests are going to reveal to us how well we're doing as Christians in our walk, how healthy we are in our faith. And so this morning we're considering what tests there are in chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, that reveal the level of our Christian maturity. So James's message throughout the epistle is how well we respond to those tests and temptations and trials indicates the level of the success we're likely to have in our walk with Jesus. 
In fact, the very first test he mentions is a huge challenge for many of us. You'll remember what he said, and this is the idea here. True Christians persevere joyfully when they are tested and trialed, he says. What a challenge. Trials tend to bring out the best and the worst in us, and we find out how we're doing when we're confronted with the trial. So the, strong are, the strength of the strong is brought out in the trial for some and the weaknesses in the weak in others. And so James says true Christians, they don't persevere grudgingly. They don't persevere reluctantly or unwillingly. Regardless of the circumstances of the test, we respond joyfully. And so we should consider this morning how well do we do in that test? Christians are to consider it joy when they fall into various trials because in the endurance of those trials, they are approved in their faith, James says. And he gives us the very best reason to persevere because in that perseverance, we get eternal life itself, he says. You'll remember in James chapter 1, verse 12, James said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For having been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the words crown and life are in apposition to each other. They're not in opposition. They are in apposition. And words are grammatically in apposition to each other when one word is in the accusative case and the other word is in the genitive case or the case of possession. And so the word life, then, modifies the word crown. It further explains the sense of the word crown. Literally, we could say, for he will receive the crown that belongs to or possesses life. Life modifies or qualifies or explains the kind of crown that we receive when we persevere in our trials. And so when our faith is approved in our perseverance, we are going to receive the crown that possesses eternal life. So think with me, it's not the man who simply confronts temptation then who is blessed, it's the man who endures all of the temptations and trials and tests that confront him. It's the man who stands firm in his conviction and understanding about the nature and the origin of that test, who bears it with patience and courage to the last. That is the man who is blessed with eternal life. So test question number one then is, are you blessed and joyful in enduring your trials well? Are you focused on the ultimate blessing of receiving the crown that belongs to life when you are persevering in your trials? Another test that James gave us, he asked us if, are you tempted to show favoritism to some people and not to others? As Christians, he says that we must seek to be impartial. It should be our aim and desire to strive to be impartial to believers and unbelievers alike. 
In chapter 2, verse 8, he said, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And he's simply saying that a person isn't to be despised or treated with disrespect based on either the level of their wealth or their poverty. If we are truly impartial, respect is due equally to every man. And so the second test question is, do you strive to love your neighbor as yourself and be impartial toward them regardless of their wealth or their poverty? He presents us, James does, with another test. When we are tempted to lash out with our tongues, mature Christians show an increasing level of restraint. In James chapter 3, verse 2, James said, If you can tame your tongue, you are a perfect man, perfectly mature. And then he shows us the reality of the difficulty in passing this test when he says at the beginning of verse 8 in chapter 3, The tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. What a challenging test that is. The tongue is unstoppable. It's rampant. It can't be controlled. It's full of evil and poison. Literally, James says, it's death-carrying. The tongue is inconsistent in that it blesses God, and then the same tongue slanders men who are made in the image of God. It's a total contradiction to bless God, but then to slander the men that God made and loves. So the test question for number three is, does your Christian faith demonstrate a growing restraint in the words that you choose? There was another test. He said, be aware that worldly people act with self-centered indulgence. Christians don't act that way. They lust, these people lust and they covet and fight because they are at odds with God and with each other. He's simply saying that Christians are not friends with the world system. True Christians don't wander back and forth between a spirit that loves the world and a spirit that loves God. They don't do that. And in a sense, James is asking, do you think that God would implant in us a spirit that envies and longs for what the enemies of God long for? He's saying this to Jews where the heathen nations that surround us in the dispersion are living apart from God. That's the reminder. They demonstrate that, that being separated from God by their lusting and their fighting and their coveting. They don't recognize God as the world's creator. And they don't recognize him as the giver of all that is good. That's why they are God's enemies. 
And so test question number four for us. Do you have faith in the ultimate purposes of God in this world? Do you endeavor to identify with God's purposes in all areas of your personal life? And finally, we come to the test in chapter 5 that speaks to the verses we're looking at today. So this final test to check our maturity level seems to be this. Does your heart turn to God in prayer when you are facing a trial of great sorrow and affliction? Does your heart turn to God in praise when you face a time of great joy? It should. And if your heart doesn't turn to God in times of both sorrow and joy, you might want to consider how well you're doing in passing this particular aspect of the test. Because praise and prayer are both a natural place to turn for the man who loves God. That's what he's saying. Whether we are in need or in sickness or in joy, where at all times do we habitually turn? In both, our hearts should be turning to God. That's the final test here. There's a good reminder for why we should turn our hearts to God in both. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. You might remember it. It says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. And so if God has appointed both, where else would we turn? So let's consider these final verses this morning in chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. You can follow along with me as I read. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And finally he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a challenging passage for us to think about this morning. I want to remind you that James uses four different words for prayer six times in the verses between 13 and 18. Is anyone among you suffering, he says, let him pray. 
I think the word suffering was probably has been translated elsewhere in the New Testament as ill-treated. Is anyone among you having to endure hardship or suffer troubles or affliction? There probably weren't many in the diaspora that would say no. They're all fleeing persecution. Then here's how you pass that test. Let him pray. Why? Because God is the source of all your comfort. Where there is suffering, you can show your dependence on God that that's really where you depend. A Christian recognizes that God alone is the source of our comfort in times of both suffering and joy. Now, the fact that you pray under these circumstances may give evidence that your faith is strong because you are depending on the Lord, but not necessarily. This is the challenging aspect that we're going to be moving into. That isn't necessarily demonstrated simply by the act of praying. Remember back in chapter 4, verses, well, somewhere around 1 and 3, He said, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulteresses, he calls them. I want you to notice that James repeatedly uses the word ask to refer to prayer and to refer to asking of God. These people that are asking, James calls adulteresses. These are friends with the world who are enemies with the Lord. Notice also the fact that they are friends with the world and at enmity with the Lord doesn't prevent them from resorting to prayer. James says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. So the truth is that they are asking, they just aren't asking in the right way. And that matters. James is talking about the manner in which they are asking. Their asking is not a true asking. A true asking is resigned to God's will and doesn't desire a carnal end in the answer to the prayer. True asking can't arise from a spirit that's alien to God, that loves the world system and expects an answer other than God would give. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, True asking seeks first, seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To that kind of asking, all things that you need will be added to you. And then he said, clothing and eating and water and all those things will be added. So James says, you are asking and not receiving because you're asking evilly in order that you might spend it on your pleasures, he says. You are asking, but only with the outward form of mere words and only in the interest of your own evil desires, he says when you are not receiving the answer. 
You are asking only so that you might waste what you receive in your luxurious indulgence, he says. And so the check for us in this aspect of the test is whether our praying is from a self-seeking spirit or not. Prayer in any true sense can't be our trying to make God will what we want to be willed. True prayer has to know that thy will be done. When we pray authentically, our spirits can't be in the camp of worldliness, which is at war with God. And I'm mentioning this here to help us understand what James's meaning is and the foundation for understanding the difficult part of the end of chapter 5 when we start talking about Elijah. So he's simply saying, pray earnestly. Pray being moved by great faith in God. Pray in all genuine faith and a desire to see God move powerfully as a result of your prayer. Pray with that intention. Well, then James goes back and he says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. We know the Christian life isn't composed solely of suffering and tribulation. There are times when we should respond with great joy to the, our situation in life. Luke uses the same word for cheerful here, and it's translated take heart. He says stay confident and positive. Don't forget to sing praises and hymns to God in your cheerfulness. That's the test of what a Christian does. Yeah, there might be moments and periods of respite when we can genuinely be cheerful and then we should sing praises. But for most of the people fleeing the tribulation in the diaspora, suffering and tribulation tended to predominate and were abundant. And so we said, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. A better translation might be, are, you, are any among you weak? Are any among you feeble, without strength, morally or spiritually? Let them call for the elders and let them pray over him. And whatever remedies you believe will assist you in having your prayer answered, use those with your prayer, including the anointing with oil. There was probably a pretty clear understanding of the healing power of anointing the body with oil during that time. But I want to share something else with you. <clears throat> Andy and I will never forget when Dave and Debbie Allen called for the elders to meet at the church to anoint Debbie with oil. And when we got here with Travis, we were expecting the, the four of us or the five of us, including Dave and Debbie. But all of their friends and their family were here as well. And they were to pray, we were to pray for Debbie when her cancer had returned and we were going to anoint her with oil. And I have to be honest with you, I can't remember a time when I've been so moved by the genuineness and the earnestness of the prayers that were offered up by the family and friends of Debbie and Dave that night. 
In fact, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I was so emotionally moved that night by the intensity and earnestness of the prayers being offered up on Debbie's behalf that I just started crying, standing behind Debbie and Dave, just crying. I could not control myself. I was unable, as an elder, to offer any voice to pray for Debbie at all. That's how emotionally intense that situation was. I was that moved by the earnestness of the prayer of her family and friends. Now, luckily, Travis was able to keep it together, though I imagine it was with some difficulty for him as well. Andy and I were both very moved emotionally. And it reminded me of something that Luther said. He said, would to God I could always pray with such earnestness and ardor, for then I would always have the answer. Your request is granted. That's what the people that were praying for Debbie and Dave that night were seeking, that God would answer that request. Well then, James says, in the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Honestly, these last couple of verses are very difficult and there's much about this section I can't be dogmatic about. But I think there are some good reasons for that. I think James is just reminding us that when it comes to prayer, remember that James is arguing for the efficacy, the potency, the power of earnest prayer. That kind of prayer, he says, is effective. It moves. But we have to remember something else as well. Prayer is a mystery. How and when it works and under what circumstances it works is a mystery to us. Literally in that passage there, James says, and the prayer that belongs to faith that is, the prayer that springs from faith in the Lord will heal the feeble or the exhausted one or the weary one, and then the Lord will bring him up out of his sickness. The Lord will awaken him from his bed of sickness by restoring that one to health, he says, making him well. Now, one of the difficulties in the passage is it's unclear if the sickness he's talking about is related to this person's sin or not. Even if his sickness happened because of some state of sin he remains in, James says that that sin will be forgiven him. And then he uses the word saving the sick, the word sozo, the common word for saving, but it has a broad range of meaning in the New Testament. It means to save someone from injury or peril, to save someone who's perishing from disease. Probably here it means to just simply make someone well, to heal them, to restore them to health. It's not talking about spiritual salvation there. And so there are sections in this passage that are really difficult to understand. Literally, James says there, and if he be one who has committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. The word committed is the word, it's the verb to make. 
And it's in the perfect tense, referring most likely to someone being in a state of sin. In that case, it can mean this. If, if he is the cause of, or the author of the sin that brought about his sickness, and is in an unforgiven state of sinfulness, when you pray, it will be forgiven him. But it's difficult to know for sure if James means that the prayer of faith is for the sickness that's due to a person's sin. In the New Testament, Jesus inferred that, you remember the paralysis of the man that came to him? He said, take up your bed and walk. Your sins have been forgiven. On the one hand, it seems as if it could be from sins. But he also said that the man born blind was not blind because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin. So to be honest, I don't know what to make of that. And I don't like not being able to know. Well, then James says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I would suggest in the context that this means in the case of sickness or weariness or exhaustion, confess your trespasses, your sins, your misdeeds to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And folks, as uncomfortable as it is and as infrequent as it is, this is just spiritually healthy for a congregation. So there is confession by the church, but it's also necessary to have confession to the church. Because this could be a great time to demonstrate a true state of humility before our brethren. It's healthy to disclaim the impurities and the struggles in our life because it reminds us that sin affects all of us. As elders, when we interview people who want to become members of the church, we're greatly blessed when people are open and humble about their sinfulness. That's why we come to Jesus, for forgiveness of sin. I, I want to share another experience with you. I would say that the most meaningful worship service I've ever been in in my life occurred when I was going to church, when our family was going to church in Eugene First Baptist several years ago. Typically, there were about 280 to 300 people in the service. And sometimes the pastor would ask if, at the end of his sermon, if anyone wanted to share anything with the congregation. And generally speaking, there was just silence. But one Sunday, a man stood up, and he was very disturbed. He said that on the previous Friday, two days earlier, he had been caught looking at pornography at work and that his boss had fired him. And he went home and he told his wife and she left him. And he was so absolutely devastated and ashamed of his sin that he felt compelled to confess it to the entire congregation. Well, naturally, the entire congregation was absolutely silent and sort of in awe of this public confession. And then he said, I'm here to confess sin to you so that you will hold me accountable. 
And I began to notice in the silence that men all around me were beginning to weep. And I was weeping as well. And my son Bryce was sitting next to me and he was in ninth grade and he whispered to me, Dad, why are you crying? And this is what I said to him. I said, Bryce, because sin is awful. It's terrible. It ruins our lives. And we know how horrible it is because of the way we always seek to hide it. And to hear a man openly confess the level of his sin before the entire congregation shows us the seriousness and the impact it has in each of our lives. His confession before the congregation showed his deep trust and his connection to the brothers in that congregation and his belief that they would honor the honesty of his confession. That was an amazing, amazing experience that I will never forget. Well, James says, he adds this little section here that says that you may be healed. Pray that you may be healed. This is probably a spiritual healing. Confess and the Lord will purge you from your sins and heal the wounds of your conscience, which seems to be exactly what that man was doing at Eugene First Baptist. He was confessing so that the Lord would purge him from his sin and his guilt in this terrible sin. And then James says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. To be honest with you, the, the English just obliterates the Greek context here. Literally, the text says, much prevails in the operative prayer of a righteous man. Those are the first words, much prevails. Or we could say, much prevails in the prayer work or the prayer energy of a righteous man, where the words work and energy describe the reason why the prayer prevails and is successful. Listen, the prayer of Elijah prevails because it exhibits a solemn and earnest energy or work within the heart of Elijah. The reason why the prayer of a righteous man has outward success It's because that prayer exhibits its activity, its operation, its work in the inward place of seriousness and earnestness in Elijah. That's the way James is urging us to be in prayer. That's the level of faithfulness in God he wants us to have. So to pray in some other way is what we need to be challenged to be observant about. And we don't want to be. This is what Spurgeon had to say about praying with great faith. He said, unbelieving prayers? Shall I call them prayers? Prayers without faith are like birds without wings. 
ships without sails, beasts without legs. Prayers that have no faith in Christ are prayers without the blood on them. They are deeds without signature, without seal, without stamp. They are impotent, illegal documents. Those prayers don't get answered. Another reason this is sort of a troubling passage here is because there's no mention of Elijah praying in 1 Kings 17 and 18 that it would not rain. The scripture there only shows that he foretold a drought. So folks, listen. We know that to, that to withhold rain is something only God can do. But we also know that prayer is able to operate even in the apparently fixed laws of the natural order. What prayer did Elijah actually pray? Well, we don't know. And we probably shouldn't know. Because if we knew it, we'd probably be inclined to want to copy it for the power we supposed that the words themselves carried. So James is saying there is clearly power in prayer. It's good and helpful by the sickbed of someone who's suffering. It is helpful in the healing of the diseases of the soul. It's good where it is united by faith of a congregation that's praying for its members. But you know what the Greek says? It literally says, with prayer he prayed. That's all. And the meaning isn't about his fervency or his frequency of prayer, but that he just prayed. That and nothing more. He simply prayed in great faith, believing God would answer. So in that way, we are very much like Elijah. He was a man like us. He was, there's listed all kinds of human weaknesses that are attributed to him that are also attributed to us. But here's part of the mystery. Remember in Scripture it says also that the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groans that cannot express. That is, we pray in great faith and the Spirit prays in our prayers. So pray earnestly. Make all your prayers and supplications in the Spirit, Paul said in Ephesians 6.18. Elijah's prayers were apparently both influenced by the Holy Spirit and springing forth from the heart of an earnest and faithful man who believed God would answer his prayers. And finally he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There is so much we could say here. I have a friend who preached on this passage three sermons. But let me just make a couple of comments. None of us are going to turn anyone back to the Lord if we aren't walking faithfully in the truth. He says, if anyone among you wanders, 
That suggests that it's the duty of all of us to be watching out for each other in terms of walking faithfully with the Lord. Folks, listen, it's not Travis's job as the pastor to turn people back from erring. It's not Kevin or Andy's or my job to keep people from wandering. But it's all of us as members of the congregation to be watching out for each other, to be caring for each other, to be concerned for the salvation of each other. Remember back in chapter 1, James said, Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, that is, by the truth which is the gospel. That's how he brought us forth into the faith. And so wandering, the word is actually the word for planet, wandering or erring then is straying from the truth of the gospel. And listen, the truth is this. People just don't suddenly fall away from Jesus. They start wandering first. Here's another truth. Believers are those who wander, not unbelievers. We're the ones who are going to wander, not people who are the enemies of the Lord. They don't wander from the truth. Wandering and straying from the truth of the gospel is probably the most serious sin in the New Testament apart from complete unbelief. Because wandering is moving towards that place of unbelief. That's the only sin that can't be forgiven in the New Testament, the sin of unbelief. All other sins are forgiven. But listen, folks, how do you know when someone is wandering away from the faith? Is it by what they say or by what they do or by what they don't do? Do we know they are wandering by what they believe or what, what they no longer believe? to be true about the gospel? Scott, in our conversations, mentioned, wandering from the truth is to act in such a way that you are not living by the truth. So this isn't merely that someone's been deceived intellectually or tricked into some postmodern relativism that says, well, you know, there's a little bit of truth in all religions, and they're all the same. They all move in the same direction. This wandering is a lifestyle that's not in accord with the truth. And you know, frankly, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. James isn't giving us intellectual ideas about theology. He's focused on practical living. He said practical living is manifested by our works, by what we do. Faith means a faithful response to God's character and covenant promises acted out in the life of the believer. But just in case you still aren't convinced of the seriousness of wandering away from the faith and how potent that problem is, listen to what Jude says in his epistle as he describes some of the clues as to who might be erring within the community of believers. He said these are their tendencies that you can cite. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of God's chosen leaders. 
They are running greedily after profit. They're serving only themselves. He said there's no substance in their faith. They are clouds without water, trees without fruit, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame. Wandering stars, he said, from whom is reserved the densest blackness of darkness forever. Is there a more serious warning anywhere in Scripture about wandering? But then he said, but you, beloved, are building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then he said this, on some have compassion, but on others make a distinction. He said, but others save without fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So on some we look with compassion, and others we're to make a distinction, and that word literally distinction, making a distinction is, we are to be chiding them, rebuking them, showing them their error, pointing out the seriousness of the error of wandering away from the faith of Jesus. So the very last command James gives us in his epistle is, you have to know that you're involving yourself in turning a brother back may save his soul and cover a multitude of sins. So we need to be connected enough as a congregation, even in the time of COVID, and concerned enough about the walk of our brothers and sisters to notice that they're wandering. And then we need to have the courage to pursue them and confront them with the truth. The love for your brother that you demonstrated in pursuing him when he is in error will cover a multitude of sins because your pursuit of them will, in effect, procure God's pardon for them. Well, let me give you a, a brief recap, and we're going to continue this morning by celebrating communion together. Let's remember James's reminder to us. Prayer is a thing of power, simplicity, brevity, and con confidence. Prayer's inherent power, James says, is great, and when prayer is exercised in the heart of a man who has great faith, its effective power is released. Prayers don't have to be masterfully articulated or complicated. Praying Christians believe that the Lord hears them and is moved to respond to them and believes that God will move. Folks, listen, every aspect of the life of the believer should be lived with immediate reference and knowledge that this is God's world. We should bring to God our joys in praise and our sorrows in prayer. There's no situation in which prayer is not the proper response for a Christian. Well, I've given you a lot to think about this morning, and James has provided us with plenty of thought-provoking words written by the Lord for us to consider.